Welcome to Spring Creek Church Online. Glad you're joining us today. We are in a series that we're calling Strapped, where we're just looking at some of the reality of what people are going through today with so many financial changes in our economy and our personal finance. And how do we navigate that? How do we deal with that? And today we're looking at another factor in being strapped and it's greed. I'm calling it the underlying sickness. As we get started, would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Father, thanks for this time we have together. Thanks for all you're doing among us. I pray, God, that this will be a very blessed time as we engage around your word, as we're challenged by the story that Jesus tells us about the nature of greed. God, may your truth find a home in our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's start off by reading from 1 John chapter 2 in the Message Bible. Don't love the world's ways. Don't love the world's goods. Love of the world squeezes out love for the Father. Practically everything that goes on in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important, has nothing to do with the Father. It just isolates you from Him. The world and all its wanting, wanting, wanting is on the way out. But whoever does what God wants is set for eternity. Wanting, wanting, wanting. There's probably not a better description of greed than that. In fact, there's probably not a better description of sin than that. When you ask someone what is sin and they respond by giving you a list of sins like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, that doesn't really define sin. It only gives you examples of sins. But what is sin at its most elemental level? Sin is selfishness. Sin is wanting my own way. Sin is wanting what I want more than I want what God wants and more than I want what you want. Of course, it leads to all those other things like lying, cheating, and stealing. But at its core, Sin is wanting, wanting, wanting. That's what it means to be a sinner. Even Isaiah said the same thing. He said, we all like sheep have gone astray, and each of us has turned to our own way. I turn to my own way. I, I want my way. You see, unless we understand the taproot of all sin is this selfish human desire, then we'll never see it in ourselves or confess it as a fundamental problem that we have. The only place we'll ever see it is in others because they aren't giving us our way. That's where we notice selfishness, not in ourselves, but in others. Here's why this matters. In more than 37 years of full-time pastoral ministry, I've had people confess all sorts of sins to me, but almost no one has ever said, I'm greedy. So think about this. The Bible constantly warns us about the dangers of greed, yet no one thinks they're guilty of it. In a sense, greed is a lot like alcoholism. Maybe the clearest sign that we struggle with it is the fact that we're not even willing to admit the possibility that we're tempted by it. So we do a whitewash on greed. We camouflage it. We use other words for it, words that are more respectable, words like desire and lifestyle and ambition or the American dream. Erwin Lutzer said it like this, we try to define greed out of existence. We tell ourselves we really don't love money. We might romance it, ruminate on it, worry that we might lose it, but we really don't love it. So before we can ever get our hearts and our minds wrapped around this topic, we have to first define it. And that's what my first point is all about, understanding greed. So the first essential in understanding greed is simply this. Greed is an attempt to replace God. The Bible's very hard-hitting when it comes to the condemnation of greed. Twice, Paul calls greed idolatry. Look at these verses. First, for this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. That's Ephesians 5.5. 5. 
or this in Colossians, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Idolatry is the sin most judged by God in the old people of the Old Testament. Idolatry is a defining characteristic of pagan people. Now, when we think of idols, we think of a carved statue or an inanimate object that someone worships. That someone worships. But an, I, an idol is actually anything I put my trust in other than God. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, defined it like this, whatever your heart clings to and relies on, that is properly your God. Maxie Dunham said it like this, the hoarding of money and things is a sure sign that we do not trust God. So greed is a form of idolatry. It's the moral equivalent of carving out a statue to a pagan deity and setting up an altar for it in your home. That's why Paul in Ephesians called greed idolatry. Greed is worshiping, trusting, and loving money or things more than God. Or how about this verse? Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. In this verse, Paul is telling you and I will have to make a choice. Our hope will be in wealth, or we're going to put it in God. Or like Jesus said, you can't serve God in money. There's room for only one thing at the top. If you choose money, you force God off his throne. The second essential in understanding greed is you need to know that greed promises happiness and kills joy. Paul said it like this, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Notice the consequences of greed that Paul just pointed out in this verse. Ruin and destruction, having your heart pierced with a lot of grief. One of the reasons God warns us about greed is because he knows this constant craving, this endless wanting, is a desperate search for joy, which actually only produces the opposite effect. Famed psychologist Eric Fromm said it like this, greed is a bottomless pit which exhausts the person in an endless effort to satisfy the need without ever reaching satisfaction. So think of it like this. When God warns us about greed, and for that matter, any other sin, he's not trying to ruin our good time. He's not trying to block us from having any fun. He warns us to protect us because greed is a joy killer. It robs us of happiness all the while promising the opposite. The third essential, greed is not just a money thing. Jesus said, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Jesus warned us about all kinds of greed. We can be sinfully greedy about anything. We can be greedy for popularity or for a better spouse or for a better body. You can be greedy for a better position, more influence, more attention, more control, more praise, more Facebook likes, or more subscribers. I mean, let's be honest, there's no end to the things that we desire or crave. I also want you to consider this. If we took the time to look at some of the Bible's great heroes of the faith, people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Job, David, and Solomon, many of them were quite wealthy by the standards of their day. Solomon, in particular, was incredibly wealthy. He was the Elon Musk of his day. But never do we hear the Lord taking them to task for the sin of greed. Other sins, sure, yes, but greed, no. So just because someone is wealthy doesn't necessarily mean that they're greedy. And conversely, just because someone is poor doesn't mean that they're not guilty of the sin of greed. 
Greed is not the same thing as having money. Greed has everything to do with our attitude. Not how much money we have, but does our money have us? Do do you possess your possessions or have they claimed ownership over your life? One writer calls greed a misdirected love. Greed turns our desires and longings away from what has real value and replaces it with cheap, cheap, lifeless trinkets that can't love us in return. Friends, never grieve over anything that can't grieve over you. The fourth and final expression of greed, greed is an expression of selfishness. Listen to this insight by Dr. Timothy Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York. Greed is a perversion of a God-given instinct for security. Greed separates my welfare from that of others and presupposes it is every man for himself. Greed is the opposite of the way God created us to be, which is to live in community. This is one of the things that will become super obvious as we look at how Jesus deals with the sin of greed. Your life and mine are either inwardly oriented or outwardly oriented. You're either becoming more selfish or more selfless. To be a sinner is to want what I want, to want my own way, to want it more than I want what God wants or what's best for you. That's the definition of what it means to be a sinner. I'm selfish. When I become a Christian, Jesus begins to liberate me from this constant me orientation, this bent toward selfishness, and turn my life outward to truly care for others. That's why when greed has a foothold in your life, it's only reinforcing the very thing that God is trying to liberate you from. Greed says, it's all about me and my needs. God says, you were created for a greater purpose than yourself. Bottom line, every sinful behavior is rooted in the selfish desire to look out for one's own welfare and disregard what's in the best interest of others. So whether we're talking about greed or envy or lust or pride, I'm living as if my well-being is really all that matters in the universe. So now I want to tell you a story that Jesus once told that gets to the heart of the matter. It was prompted by a family squabble over inheritance, which was really only a smokescreen for a much bigger problem, which is why I call this next point when the problem is not the problem. Here's how the story played out. Someone in the crowd said to him, that is said to Jesus, teacher, tell me, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me? a judge or an arbiter between you. Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. So get this, Jesus was teaching his disciples and a large crowd had gathered when all of a sudden he's interrupted by someone who wanted him to resolve a family dispute over inheritance. Understand this guy's not really asking for advice. He just wants Jesus to take his side and tell his brother what to do. He wants to use Jesus to coerce his brother to go along with his pre-made decision. Make my brother do what I think is right. It's an attempt at triangulation. This is when two people are having a problem and one of the parties tries to pull someone else into the middle of it to choose their side. It's a very dysfunctional way of relating. Run away from people like this. Or at the very least, be like Jesus, who absolutely refused to be drawn into this man's family squabble. Instead, Jesus said, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? I mean, isn't it strange how many of us are more than willing to do what Jesus absolutely refused to do? Someone comes to us with a problem. We've only heard one side of the story and we judge. We say, that's not right. Here's what I would do if I were you. We're so quick to play the judge to determine what's right and wrong and who's good and who's bad. Friends, when relationships break down, there's two things you always need to keep in mind. First, 
No one can ever judge having just heard one side of the story. No one. This is why the Bible says, the first to present his case seems right till another comes forward and questions him. The second thing to keep in mind is this. There's always something greater at stake than the crisis at hand. Jesus refused to do what this man was trying to manipulate him to doing because something much more important was at stake. And Jesus would use this crisis as a teachable moment. So Jesus is going to tell the man a story, but first he's going to give everyone in the crowd a warning. He said, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So if you look up in the New Testament, the word for greed, here's what you discover. Greed is an excessive longing or craving for such things as food, drink, wealth, or possessions. It's a craving beyond reason that reveals a crass sort of selfishness. Jesus says the heart of the dispute was greed. He says that a man's real life doesn't consist of how much stuff he has. There's no happiness in money or possessions. All of that fades in comparison to what real life is about. Here's something to keep in mind. There are two words in the New Testament that, that, that the New Testament uses for the word life. One is bio. It's the word from which we get biology, and it means our physical life. This isn't the word that Jesus uses here. The other word is zoe, and it's a special word that means life that satisfies or a rich life. That's the word Jesus uses. So basically what Jesus says is this, how much stuff you have will never give you zoe, will never make your life truly rich. So now Jesus is going to bring the lesson home with a story that I call, what will you do with your blessings? So here's how it goes. And Jesus told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. So this is the story about a farmer who experiences a bumper crop. The farmer was diligent, no doubt. I'm sure he planted, weeded, and harvested. But he didn't make the rain fall or cause the sun to shine. He wasn't responsible for the especially fertile soil. He didn't make the, cre the seed crack open, sprout, and multiply. If he were honest, he would have to acknowledge God as the provider of his abundant blessing. What's true of the fortunate farmer is also true of us. Much of what we have, much of what we are, was given to us. It could be that you were born into a family where education was a high priority. Some of you were born into families where the DNA you received contained some special genes that causes you to excel in intelligence. You didn't earn that. You didn't accomplish that on your own. It was a gift of birth. Something else many of us take for granted, we were born into one of the most highly developed nations in the world. We didn't earn that. It was also a given. Imagine if you'd been born somewhere in the developing world, where you were never given an opportunity to go to school, or you lost your parents at a young age and were orphaned. What if at the age of nine, and I've met plenty of kids like this in Africa, you became the primary caregiver for all your younger siblings? What if you had zero chance of ever going to college? If you were born in a place like that instead of this place, where would you be today? What I'm saying is, is even where you were born was a gift. But what we all have to remember is this, whether we're farmers or write code for computers, it's God who provides. He gives us the ability to do what we do. 
He gives us the ability to think, to calculate numbers, to make plans, even to speak and to breathe. All of us earn our wealth with borrowed abilities. It's like what Charles Spurgeon once said, whatever is your position and whatever are your gifts, remember that they are not yours, but they are lent you from on high. No man has anything of his own except his sins. Now, here's something else you should notice about this farmer. He has absolutely no thought for other people. What about the farmers in his community that haven't done so well? What about the farmers who don't own as much land as he does? What about the workers in the field? Will they benefit from this bountiful harvest? He never looks at this windfall as an opportunity to help other people who are less fortunate. Apparently, it never even occurs to him that he could share some of this great abundance that he's been blessed with. Instead, he thinks, let me tear down the barns I have and build bigger ones so that I can keep all that I have for myself. Wealth is such a mixed blessing, isn't it? I mean, with it, we can have many of the comforts and conveniences that we wouldn't have had otherwise. With more wealth, it seems like we can do more of what we want to do. We can buy more stuff. We can go to nicer restaurants. We can have a greater sense of security. It's easy to fall into the trap of thinking only of ourselves and what we desire. But there's this one line in the story that speaks volumes, and that's when Jesus said, the man said, he thought to himself. Now, let's stop right there. In the ancient Middle East, you lived your entire life in community. You lived with friends, family, and your neighbors. You existed together. Your community was bound up together. You depended on one another. You needed one another. There's a researcher. His name is Dr. Kenneth Bailey. He's done extensive studies regarding Middle Eastern customs. He talks about the city gate in the Middle East and how the men of the city would go there and discuss everything. They would discuss politics and religion and farming and education, even the raising of children. There was this overarching assumption that if you lived in community, you would never make a significant decision without first bringing it to the community. I mean, think about how much better our financial decisions would be if we had a trusted community around us before we rushed off to make a major purchase. I mean, I have to confess, every fouled up financial decision I've ever made has been the result of not seeking advice from my community and making decisions totally on my own. So back to this story. Jesus tells the story in such a way as to make clear the man is speaking only to himself. So what does that tell you? He's all alone. He's isolated. Did you know that the word idiot comes from the idea of someone who tried to live outside of the village so that they were on their own? They were completely cut off. They were private. That's what an idiot is. Someone living all alone and isolated from the needs of, of others. It's a very self-defeating and self-deceiving way to live. At the same time, the rich fool doesn't seem like an evil man who lies and cheats to get wealthy, does he? Like most of us, he just seems to have benefited from a lot of good things that all seem to line up for him. The trap he falls into is of his own making. When he has this unexpected bumper crop, he doesn't run into the village celebrating, announcing his plans to share his good fortune with the community, let alone getting their help in deciding how to deal with this excellent problem. He just turns inward and he stays there. In fact, 11 times he uses the first person, I and my. The man never speaks the word ours or theirs. Just like Jesus said, the man is speaking to himself, and it's all about himself. You see, unless you live with your head in the sand, isolating yourself from the real problems that exist in your community, it would never occur to you to hoard blessings for yourself. Unless you've organized your life in such a way that you never actually rub shoulders with anyone who has unmet needs, when blessings come your way, you wouldn't think of yourself as the only worthy recipient. 
But what happens all too often in suburbia is we all live in the world where everyone around us pretty much has similar levels of blessing and wealth, and our wealth isolates us from the cry of the needy. We're idiots. We're living alone and disconnected from a world of need. In the Talmud, which is a compilation of Jewish oral history, there's a line that reads, when the community is in trouble, let not a man say, I will go to my house and I will eat and drink and all will be well with me, but rather a man should share in the distress of the community. Throughout the Bible, there's this basic assumption that wealth is not just for me. God doesn't bless us so we can just get larger, nicer homes, extra storage space, acquire more stuff, treat our kids better, secure our futures. Greed always has been a sin that affects more than just you. Thomas Aquinas, the Catholic Catholic theologian, he described the effects of greed like this. He said, greed is a sin directly against one's neighbor since one man cannot overabound in external riches without another man lacking them. Your greed and my greed always comes at the expense of other people. Greed is not just a sin against God. It's a sin against our community. Rob Bell, he really summed it well. He said, the unbelievable amassing of wealth and consumer goods that we have at our fingertips in American culture, our greatest challenge will be to learn how to move this into blessings for others, or we will continue to be more selfish and indifferent to the cries of the world. These insane amounts of goods that are at our service are not doing good things to our souls. Wealth is meant to benefit us and our community. In the same way, when someone is in our community and they're in need, we have a responsibility to help. The real issue is the focus of our life. The fool focuses completely on themselves. Like Klein Snodgrass said, foolishness consists in thinking that responsibilities end with securing one's own economic future. So this guy is thinking about himself and talking to himself. Once he has his bigger barns, he says, so you've got it made. You have many good things, enough to last for many years. It's time to retire, take life easy, to enjoy the good things for years to come. It's time to eat, drink, and be merry. Now, before I go any further, let me ask you a question because it's begging to be asked. Is the rich guy a bad guy? Now, before you answer that, think about what he's done. The possessions he's accumulated are not what we would call luxury items, are they? He didn't go out and buy a summer home or a second camel or a pimped out chariot. He's rich, that's true. And he has a lot of grain, that's food. He has so much grain that he builds bigger barns to store it in. And finally, he feels relieved to have so much grain. He finally has some security for himself and for his family. The man is prepared, he's ready to retire, he's got plans. Are we all that different? Can't you see yourself in this guy? Don't, don't you get where he's coming from? And yet God calls this man a fool. So, so where's the line? How much grain can we save up for ourselves without being in trouble with God? Are medium-sized barns okay, just not the extra large variety? And if there's a line we shouldn't cross, what is that line? And how will I know if I've crossed it? I mean, these are unsettling truths, aren't they? I mean, it's, it's obvious that this is a big deal to Jesus. It cost a man his life. So when do you cross the line? How do you know if your barn's too big? How, how much can I keep for myself? And how much am I required to give away? We want specifics. We want to be told, here's the rule. As long as you give X amount or Y percentage, everything's cool with God. But the story doesn't give us any details like that, does it? It only makes clear that you can't keep it all. 
but it says nothing about how much you're supposed to give away. And because it doesn't specify, we engage in a game of caveats and exceptions. We tell ourselves, but I have to take care of myself first. If I don't do that, I won't have anything left to give. Can't you see how that line of reasoning completely misses the point? Jesus didn't tell us this story to prioritize taking care of ourselves. We already know how to do that. That's our default setting. To be sinful is to be selfish. He told us this story to free us up from the prison of constantly prioritizing ourselves. This story is the antithesis of self-absorption. If we're to live out the gospel, then we must cease with the excuses. It's far better, if you know that this is an area where you struggle, to just admit it. Admit that it's a part of your life, that it stands in need of redemption. Admit that it's a part of your life where you struggle to find God as your source of security instead of stuff. So own it, but don't excuse it. Confess it, but don't justify it. I think this story Jesus tells us lacks specifics for a reason. Because love doesn't follow rules, it follows God. God wants us to live our lives loving Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. That understanding changes the question altogether. The question is not, how little can I do and still be okay? And the question is not, what do I have to do? What God wants us to do is set us free to ask, what would love have me do? Jesus goes through great pains here to give us two major characteristics of the rich fool's life. The barn builder is greedy, and the barn builder is alone. These are not two things we typically put together, but Jesus does. We don't really see how consumerism, how hoarding and having stuff is the single greatest obstacle to relationship. But Jesus makes it a definite one-to-one -one correlation. The more greedy you are, the more alone you'll be. The more this guy's focused on his bigger barn and taking care of himself, the more isolated he becomes. He ended up being so alone that in the end, the narrator stops telling the story and the man takes over and tells his own story. You see, there is a warning deeply embedded in the words of this parable. By choosing a bigger barn, you're choosing to move in the opposite direction of relationship. The more you worry about your own security and future, the more isolated you become. There's a real danger in not seeing ourselves in the story because we're barn builders. Are we securing our own future at the cost of relationship? Now, at this point in the story, it abruptly changes. I call this next point, making a living is not necessarily making a life. Listen to how Jesus concludes the story. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. You know, this is the only parable in the New Testament in which God himself is an actor in the parable. This farmer has no problem receiving blessings. When it comes to actually doing with them what he's supposed to do, he forgot that God is a part of the picture. And now God is the only character who can address this rich man because the rich man has eliminated all the other people from his life that could speak to him. And God calls the man a fool. Now, the word that's translated fool is the word affron. The, the, the root of affron is friend, from which we get the word diaphragm. It's the center of your breathing, your life source, where everything happens inside of a person. When God comes on the scene, he says, you affron. The A in front of it negates it. In other words, you're without this center. You're without life, without breath, without passion, without awareness. God says this man is a fool because he's living without possessing a life. 
Remember what Jesus said up front before he even told this story. A man's real life, his Zoe, does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The man is without real life. That makes him a fool. Now, here's another nuance. God says your life will be demanded of you. This is a legal term in the Greek. It means to recall or demand something back. So if I lend you something, you're required to give it back when I ask you because it's not yours. It's only borrowed. And God says this night your life will be demanded from you. In other words, your life was merely on loan, and now God is demanding that it be repaid. Remember what I said earlier? All of us earn our wealth with borrowed abilities. Everything about your life, including your life itself, is borrowed. God lent it to you. It's not yours to do with as you wish. One day, God will ask for it back because it was only on loan. This brings an entirely new meaning to this parable. None of us would have a problem with saying that his wealth is stuff. The harvest was a gift. But this parable takes it to a whole nother level. It reminds us that the man's very life was a gift from God. This fool didn't understand that his life was on loan by God to be used for God and his purposes. And one day, he'll be called upon to give an account. There was a psychologist who told a story about playing Monopoly with his grandmother. That's where he learned how to play, from her. He described his grandma as a wonderful person, raised six kids, a widow. But she was the most ruthless Monopoly player he'd ever known. She understood the name of the game was to acquire and when he played his grandma, once he got his all of his initial money from the bank, he just tried to hold on to it because he didn't want to lose any of it. But grandma spent everything, bought stuff she landed on as soon as she could, and then she'd mortgage what she had to buy even more stuff. And eventually, she'd accumulate everything. She'd be the master of the board. She understood that money was how you keep scoring that game, and she won every single time. At the end of the game, she would look at her grandson and say, one day you'll learn how to play the game. She's kind of cocky. One day, you'll learn how to play the game. And then he wrote this. When I was about 10, I played every day with a kid that lived in our neighborhood. And it dawned on me that the only way to beat somebody in Monopoly was a total commitment to acquisition. That summer, I learned how to play the game. And by the time fall rolled around, I was more ruthless by far than even my grandmother. I went to play her. And I was willing to do anything to win. I was willing to bend the rules. I played with sweaty palms, slowly, cunningly exposed the soft underbelly of my grandmother's weakness. Relentlessly, I drove her off the board. The game does strange things to you. I can still remember like yesterday. It happened at Marvin Gardens. I looked at my grandmother, this person who taught me how to play. She was an old woman by now. She was a widow. She'd raised my mother. She loved me. And I took everything she had. I destroyed her financially and psychologically. I watched her give her last dollar and quit in utter defeat. This was the greatest moment of my life. But then grandma had one more thing to teach her grandson. She said, now it all goes back in the box. All the houses and hotels, boardwalk and park place, all those railroads and utilities and all that wonderful money, it all goes back in the box. Now, her grandson didn't want it to all go back in the box. He wanted to leave it out permanently, maybe even bronze it as a memorial to what he'd achieved. When grandma said it all goes back in the box, it was her way of saying, none of it's really yours. It doesn't belong to you. You don't own any of it. You just used it for a little while, and now it all goes back in the box. And next time, it'll go to somebody else. That's the way the game works. So when you play the game, don't forget this lesson. 
when the game comes to an end, and the game always comes to an end, all the stuff goes back in the box. That's what Jesus is telling us. There's coming a time when the life I've lent you, I'm going to want it back. It all goes back in the box. Eugene Peterson translates the very last verse this way. He says, that's what happens when you fill your barn with self and not with God. So how do we move against this impulse to be selfish, to be greedy? An early 19th century pastor from Scotland named Thomas Chalmers often talked about this. He said, it's the expulsive power of a new affection is the strength needed to overcome a sinful behavior. We don't simply turn away from greed. Instead, it needs a replacement, a new affection. Or how about this from Rusty Reno, who said, vices are cured by their contrary. So if, as Chalmers said, greed needs a replacement, and as Reno said, vices are cured by their contrary or their opposite, then greed itself can only be overcome by its opposite. You and I will never just cease to be greedy. That's like someone who stops abusing alcohol without putting a positive practice in its place. If you don't replace it with something better, a healthier choice, then something else destructive is going to rush in, fill up the void where the alcoholism used to be. As they say, nature abhors a vacuum. Or how about this observation from Jay Adams? Change is a two-factored process. These two factors always must be present in order to affect genuine change. Putting off will not be permanent without putting on. Putting on is hypocritical as well as temporary unless it is accompanied by putting off. So real and true spiritual change is not just about putting off something bad. It's about putting on something good in its place. This is something explicitly taught by Paul in the book of Ephesians. Old patterns have to be replaced by new positive ones. Just read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 32. In that short, short section, Paul talks about putting off the old man and putting on the new man. And then he gives numerous illustrations as to what that means. He says, let the person who stole steal no more, but rather do something productive with your hands, producing good things. He tells us it's not just a matter of putting away lying, but we have to learn how to speak only the truth. Paul tells us to stop using abusive language by replacing it with what encourages others and lifts them up. You and I will never just stop being greedy. Greediness is cured by generosity. Remember the words Jesus quoted in Acts, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When our sinful impulse is to take, take, and take, we fight back with something better. We give, give, give. Giving is better. Giving makes me happier than getting. Richard Foster says it like this, just the very act of letting go of money and some uh, or some other treasure does something within us. It destroys the demon greed. The antidote to greed has always been generosity. Graham Tomlin said it like this, generosity sets limits on what we acquire and it introduces a vitally important factor, the needs of other people who might be the recipients of our generosity. One of the most encouraging things happening here at Spring Creek right now are the number of first-time givers and how many of them are giving more than just once, but repeatedly. For those of you who've been doing this for a long time, we're so happy because we know that you're going to discover that you can't outgive God. 
God is always faithful to bless us, provide for us, will multiply what we have left to meet the needs in our life. I just really want to encourage you to keep it up. Your gifts not only help to support the pastors on staff here, but it's who've given their lives, of course, in service to God and to others. But this church makes a priority of helping our neighbors. In fact, this weekend, we are blessed to have the entire staff of Hope Clinic, one of our local ministry partners, with us in attendance. Every month, Spring Creek sends money in support of this vital ministry that helps our vulnerable neighbors with free medical care and is changing lives for the good. We love Hope Clinic. We're so glad they're a part of what we're doing, and we're so happy to support them in all they do. For those of you who are just rocking along, giving sacrificially to God's kingdom each and every week, every time you're paid, let me also say thank you. None of this would be possible without you. You are difference makers, and your stories could help so many others who are just beginning on this generosity journey. Always feel free to share your testimony of what God has done in your life to set you free from greed and teach you generosity. And for all of us who have heard Jesus' story today about a man, not all that unlike us, I mean, a man who was abundantly blessed, who decided to build bigger barns to contain his blessings, let's all ask the real question that needs to be asked, which is not, how much can I keep before I cross the line of being selfish, but what would love have me do? That's what will defeat greed for good and let generosity rule in its place. Let's pray. Father, I'm just grateful that we've had this time to look at your word and this story. This is a story that doesn't have as much detail as we would like it to have. We want religion. We want rules. We want it all outlined. And you don't do that, Jesus. Instead, you tell us that the foolish person is always and only thinking of themselves and that we're not to be like that that we're to be the kind of people who lift our vision, lift our hope, and lift our love to see our neighbors in need and make a difference there. So God, I pray that you would set us free from the prison of greed, that we would understand that this is not just about stopping being greedy or quitting with uh, obsessive thoughts and, and, and selfishness, but God, it's about putting something positive in its place. It's learning to have an expansive heart. It's learning to engage with a world of need and know that, God, you've blessed me to be a blessing. That, God, as you pour things into my life, you're more than willing to pour even more in and through my life if I'm willing to be a conduit and not a reservoir. So God, help us to be the kind of people who bless others. Help us to be the kind of people who are known for our generosity. God, help us to not be bigger barn builders. Help us not to be those who are foolish, who only think of themselves and live for themselves. God, we know that one day it all goes back in the box. All of the stuff, all that we are, our very life is on loan to us from you. So God, help us to invest it in your kingdom purposes. In your name I pray, amen. God bless you. Thanks so much for being with us as always. You know, you do a great compliment anytime that you like a message, anytime you share a message. When you give us comments, we can see what's going on in your life, how God is working in your heart. Please feel free to share that. We'd love to hear from you. God bless you. Hope you'll be with us next week.